It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Welcome to The X-Files, stories of life after God. This special feature of the Life After God podcast explores stories of diverse people who have left the faith and religion they grew up with. In each episode, individuals will share in their own words how and why their worldview changed, the gains and losses associated with their religious and spiritual transition, the lessons they've learned in the process, and what their life is like now. To learn more about The X-Files and the Life After God podcast, please visit our website at lifeaftergod.org. Special thanks to Ian Gordon for the use of the theme music, The Truth Is Out There. If you would like to consider sharing your story in a future episode of The X-Files, please send a short email to ryan at lifeaftergod.org. I think when you can know yourself... That's Marsha Wickham. ...really well and be comfortable, especially with fear. And when you get so comfortable with that fear, which I think is a lot of what my recovery process was about, um, I think once you get comfortable with fear and you don't fear, fear, then, you know, you, you really uh, don't fear sources of information. You, you start to realize that if there's truth there or something that you're going to understand from it or take from it, you know, that that, that uh, is yours to figure out. Today on The X-Files, Marsha tells me about her harrowing childhood and early adult experiences that were shrouded in and protected from scrutiny by Christianity and many of its core beliefs. Marsha's childhood was stolen from her by the very people who should have been safeguarding her. I should warn you in advance, this story may trigger some very intense emotional responses if you or someone you love has experienced the things Marsha has experienced. While her descriptions of her childhood are not graphic in nature, she speaks honestly about the abuse she endured. Today, she is a mother to eight beautiful children and an organic farmer. She speaks to us from her home in Richfield, Pennsylvania. Maybe just start by telling me what your sort of earliest uh, religious or spiritual memories are? Yeah. um, Okay. Well, there was never a time in my growing up years that uh, church, um, Christianity in particular, was not a part of my life. Um, The earliest I can remember is probably being, you know, maybe two or three. Um, My brother, who was six years older than me, would walk us down to the little Bible chapel a couple blocks away every Sunday, um, and we would go to Sunday school there. And um, my parents never accompanied us to church. It wasn't, they didn't go, but I think they felt like by sending us, they were doing something good for us at that point. And um, they had a very volatile relationship. It was, um, it was fraught with a lot of dysfunction. But um, those memories very early were pretty positive. Um, we had to memorize little verses of scripture and we got little prizes from a basket each week, you know, if we could re- remember our verses. And um, so that piece of it doesn't uh, feel um, very I- impressive in my mind as anything 
you know, particularly positive or negative. It was just kind of, a, I think, mostly positive. Um, after that, it, things changed a lot. Um, my parents divorced when I was about seven. And uh, my mom had become, uh, she had gotten a job for the first time. She was had been a stay-at-home mom. And um, this would have been, gosh, probably early 70s um, as a church secretary at a United Church of Christ. So um, we, you know, she, she divorced my dad shortly after our getting that job. Um, and we moved across town very suddenly and very abruptly. And um, then that church, which was an inner city church in Reading, um, became sort of the center of my church experience. Um, we were like the youngest people in the whole church. It was a, a fairly geriatric congregation of mostly older people. Um, but you know, that, that kind of made it enjoyable for me because I was, I sort of was the center of attention as a young person there. And, um, I, I mostly have, again, positive memories of that experience. Um, I sang in the choir with my mom and, um, in the summers I would roam that building. It was, it was very ornate and very beautiful and very old. It was a historic church and, uh, I'd roam the halls and, find locked cabinets and find keys to open them and old books would be in there. And it was just kind of fun to wander around there on my own in the summers when my mom would bring me to work with her. So um, up to that point, things were, were pretty um, not, not negative, you know, in terms of what I, I was exposed to or, or believed um, my, you know, family wasn't real dogmatic about, their religious practices um, at that point in my life, but and you're a preteen um, at this point, right? Something. Like um, yeah this this would have been up until right around eleven or twelve. Yeah. Um, and then when I was twelve, um, my brother. I only have one sibling, and and at the time that my parents divorced, he elected to live with my dad, which I guess he was at an age where that was uh, his choice to make. And so um, at some point during that time. Uh, and I would just, I would only see my dad on Sundays. So at some point during that time, my brother, um, met a girl in public high school who, um, he was smitten with and she was a member of the Mennonite church. And, um, she was very powerfully influential in his life and started to include him in her youth group activities and her church activities. And, um, he was, you know, pretty quickly evangelized into that faith community um, and felt uh, very welcome and connected there. And um, it's kind of odd because, you know, uh, when I would visit my dad on Sundays, my brother really usually would disappear. He had older friends and, you know, I always kind of took this to be because he was older than me and um didn't quite get what that was all about. And then suddenly when he had this conversion experience, um, he, he invited me to go to friendlies with him for ice cream and, you know, um, said that, you know, he wanted to spend some time with me. And I, I thought it was very odd and, but I was really excited because I, I adored my <laughs> older brother and you know, I was really looking forward to hanging out with him and thought this was all great. Um, however, he, you know, it ended up being an experience where he, he needed to share with me that I was, um, very much on my way to hell and, um, he had his Bible along with him right there while we had our hot fudge Sundays and needed to, you know, really clarify that despite the fact that I had been, you know, going to church and things that 
um, it wasn't the right kind of church, and I probably had never been exposed to the real gospel. And, um, you know, he needed to explain to me that this was very important that, you know, I make a decision for, for Christ um, to follow him in my life the right way, because if not, I was definitely on my way to hell. And, um, and so I, I just remember sitting there feeling a mixture of disappointment that, you know, we weren't going to talk, you know, about like, you know, bad company and three dog night and the Beatles or something. And instead we were, we were talking about my, you know, uh, inevitable damnation. Oh my. So, uh, yeah, that was kind of hard, but I, but I also believed him. Like I, you know, I was in a very, very bad place at that point in my life. Um, what he didn't know at the time about me, um, was that for all of those Sunday afternoon visits, my dad had been molesting me fairly routinely. Um, and so of course I had already, uh, been in this mindset of I'm bad, you know, I'm, you know, I have this shameful secret that I can't tell anyone. And, um, certainly some aspect of the idea that I was going to hell rang true in my mind. And I, I felt like, uh, there was every reason to believe that. And, uh, also, the idea that, you know, there could be a rescuer, you know, that was a pretty enticing thought to me. Um, I don't think prior to these, this conversation and these ideas that I had much of a, a supernatural worldview, I don't think I ever had the idea in my head that there were spiritual forces at work or that, um, you know, certainly I, I maybe prayed. Well, I did pray. I, I was a praying person, but I, I wasn't seeing a lot of evidence that prayer was changing anything, especially with the the situation with my father. Um, At that point, my dad had not, he was not a Christian. He wasn't professing any kind of religious faith during the years that this abuse was going on. Um, So it's, it's interesting, you know, the, the dynamics that I had in my head at this time. And I, I really bought into the idea that it was because um, I hadn't gotten it right, you know, and this was an opportunity for me to actually finally get it right. And this was going to fix things and resolve this, this, uh, situation with the incest. And it was going to, uh, potentially rescue me from it and, um, you know, kind of get me out of it somehow. And, um, so I, I readily prayed with him, you know, right there in the friendlies and, you know, he led the, the sort of classic sinners prayer that, um, is so common to evangelical Christianity. And we prayed together and, I had this, like, you know, I really thought things were going to be different and, you know, went out, you know, in this new mindset that, you know, uh, I was definitely in a different place and God was on my side and circumstances were going to change. And um, As you were saying a minute ago, you were blaming yourself, at least for part of this, uh, as you said, the secret that you had, the shameful secret. And this was, I guess... What you're saying, perhaps, is that this is this was your chance to write your side of it, if they're, you know, in your mind at least. Yes. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, and so, uh, I, you know, I I started to um, spend a lot of time with this this Mennonite family that my brother had been, uh, you know, he he was going to be marrying into, and um, they became very influential in my life and. Um, there were Bible studies on Wednesday evenings, and this was a, a progressive, charismatic Mennonite church in Lancaster County. So uh, they prayed in tongues. Um, they believed in prophecy. Um, 
And so when I started becoming involved in this, these were very um, bizarre and frightening experiences at times, you know, to, to witness somebody praying in tongues and um, to, to kind of hear uh, there was a man who would just stand up randomly in church and start singing in this strange monotone voice, you know, a prophecy that God had given him and about things that were, were to happen. And um, it was just very powerful in my mind that, that this all was real stuff. You know, this was God making this stuff happen. And, um, you know, I, I certainly was, you know, uh, under that sort of mentality. Um, these were convincing things that were going on. And um, when I was about 14, then uh, my brother, who had been, you know, I guess evangelizing to my father very, in, you know, intently for two years, my father finally decided to uh, give his life to Christ, so to speak, and had this also um, very drastic conversion experience. And we went from Sunday afternoon sex to Sunday afternoon at the Mennonite Fellowship dinner after church. Oh my God, um, what a jarring quite, transition. Yeah, quite literally. It was it was stunning. <laughs> it was, uh, uh, it blew me away. Wow. Um, yeah. Yeah. I didn't, I didn't even know how to act. Um, and so, uh, you know, that, at that point, the, the incest stopped, you know, he, he stopped, uh, you know, engaging in that kind of activity with me. And, uh, we had a, a new, more wholesome way to spend our Sunday afternoons. <laughs> so it was, uh, it was kind of a relief, but, uh, I was also, you know, I, I, I kind of was waiting, you know, I was, I was kind of like, okay, he's had this major life change, you know, he's accepted Christ, you know, you know, I've waited all this time and this is it, you know, we're going to, now we're going to be able to talk about this and he's going to uh, bring this out in the open. We're going to, you know, be able to have this out and we're going to have a conversation and people are going to know and, you know, um, and that, that was not to happen. Um, he was, uh, he's strangely withdrawn from me and becoming more and more uh, about the, these people from his church who, who were so accepting of him um, and sort of sending me to, to run along and make friends with the church people while he um, dined and conversed with them and things. It was very odd for me to have gone from being sort of the, the object, if you want to call it that, of his uh, uh, affections, which is kind of a... Maybe that's not a good way to put it. <laughs> Desire, at least. Yeah, there we go. Right. Um, to to sort of being on the outs and and sort of just being left to try to figure this out on my own. Like, what did this mean and what was going on? And meanwhile, you know, I, I still lived at home with my mom, you know, while all of these drastic changes were happening. And as far as I knew, everyone involved was absolutely clueless about this, this secret. That's what I was going to ask you. Like, nobody knows as far as you know. Nobody knows. Yeah. And so uh, I hit about 15, uh, about a year after this, you know, remarkable transformation that he'd had. And uh, my mom uh, underwent some kind of a breakdown of her own. She was uh, going through some kind of depression and she was taking to her bed for days at a time. And and I was seizing those opportunities to not show up for school because I had obviously and for obvious reasons, lots of my own issues. But um, I really hated school. I really felt like um, uh, not the same as everybody else. You know, I carried that that feeling that I was different somehow, and you know that I I was pretty sure that the other kids weren't having sex with their dads. So 
um, this creates a huge rift socially, you know, among peers mm. to kind of be taking that into your your world. And so I had a lot of trouble with school and friendships and social things. Um, but so I was taking advantage of her being oblivious and staying home from school a lot. And finally, uh, school officials came and said, you know, what's going on? She has to come to school, you know, and, and kind of intervened. And, um, you know, I think my mom at that point was feeling like she just couldn't, she couldn't parent anymore. So um, she announced that it would probably be better for me to go and live with my dad, oh, which no. of course was this uh, horrific, absolutely horrific nightmare. Like I just was kind of like, what do I do? Like, this do can't I, be happening. Yeah, this can't be happening, you know, and I couldn't, there was no way for me to explain why that was a really bad idea. And, you know, I knew his living circumstances. He had a one room apartment, a one bedroom apartment that he was living in. And um, I just felt so, I felt powerless to say anything. So uh, I ended up just packing up and moving in with him and uh, having to share that one bedroom. And of course we went off to church, you know, uh, every Sunday and, and did every single activity there was to do in church. And, um, but meanwhile, I couldn't sleep at night because there was no way. I mean, he put this like curtain divider up between his side of the room and mine. And it was a huge space, but there was just no way. And uh, I came down onto the living room floor and camped out there. And I had gotten very, very sick because I would stay awake all night. I just ran myself down from the anxiety of being under the same roof with him. And um, finally, you know, he was he was upset because, again, I was missing a lot of school. I was sick and you know, he, he kind of got angry with me and said, you know what, you know, I'm, you know, what, why is this going on? Why is this happening? And I said, are you kidding me? You know, I said, you can't be possibly wanting to ask me that. I said, you know, for, for all those years, I said, you were coming after me. And, you know, I said, uh, I can't, I cannot share a room with you. I said, I just can't. And he said, how dare you bring that up to me? You know, he said, I am a Christian. I am a new man in Christ and you're a Christian and you have no right to bring up my past life. And, that that is, you know, Satan has gotten into you, and he started going off on me about Satan, and he started screaming at me that, you know, um, Satan needed to get out of his house, and um, it was just an absolutely horrifying experience to go through. I, I I think sometimes even over the the sexual trauma itself, that piece of it where I had to work up the courage to confront what went on and having him use. The, the religion as a, a basis for for shaming me back into silence. Um, was he afraid that, was, that you would tell people, do you think? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. He this was, was his way of keeping you quiet? Yes. He was terrified. And, and it was so bizarre because um, probably within days of that confrontation, uh, my uncle, who is his brother, came into to the apartment that I shared with my dad. And and went through all of my things, just rifled through all of my things. I had no idea what was going on. And, um, you know, I guess my dad, because he was so terrified that I was going to start singing like a canary, um, told my uncle that he suspected that I was on drugs, that I was using some kind of, you know, that there was some kind of substance abuse because I was, I was saying things that weren't true. And um, <sighs> I did not put that piece together seriously until I was like in therapy like in my 20s. And, and I, I suddenly realized why my uncle came and went through my things. It was like so far out of it. I was so confused. I was, um, um, you know, baffled by why he would do that. But it, w it was effective and it, it kept me quiet 
um, I didn't breathe a word. Um, I was, you know, uh, I had a boyfriend, um, and he, he figured it out pretty quickly, um, by my inability to be uh, physically intimate. Right. Uh, he knew, he knew that, you know, whenever we would try to be together in that way, um, I would react very, uh, cold fishy. Right. So, um, it was pretty obvious. And he, he asked me point blank, you know, did, did something happen, you know? And, um, uh, I said, yeah, you know, I, I told him and, um, he had considered himself to be a Christian too, um, and, and was attending church with me, et cetera. So, uh, you Are you know, still we, going to the Mennonite church at this point? Me now. No, no. Oh, I mean, yes, at this, yes, yes, yes. You were still going with your dad to yes, the Mennonite church. I was. Yep. I sure was. And, um, so when I, I came out with this to my boyfriend, who was probably the very first person I had ever said it to, mm. um, we both, you know, we both agreed that my dad was a Christian now, like that, that it was bizarre. You know, the, the fact that, you know, we weighed this, this horrible reality of my life and what it had done to me against the idea that he was this new man in Christ and that there was nothing, there was nothing to be done. Like we, we needed to just forgive and, and let that be and move forward. And it, it was that simple in our minds. And we, we let that sort of uh, mm. be the the thing that we held it up to, and so uh, you know we we continued both of us not to have any confrontation about it, not to talk about it. Um, we married. Uh, I was seventeen years old, and actually um, that that was a an interesting piece too, because uh, what had happened was after this confrontation with my dad and. Um, you know, the, the uncle coming in and going through my things. Um, my dad had, uh, asked this Mennonite family that my brother had, had married into whether they would uh, allow me to live there in sort of a foster care situation. Um, he actually offered to pay them to allow me to live there. Uh, when I was in high school, um, I think at that point he felt that I was, you know, he couldn't have me there. Um, and so they, they readily agreed to that. They took me in, and I, I lived with them on their farm. And uh, I was probably 16 at this point. And uh, that it was their church that we were all attending. And um, they, they knew I had a boyfriend, and uh, I was seeing him. He lived right down the road, actually, and that's actually how we met. Um, he would come to their farm a lot to, to kind of hang out with the, the one brother there. And uh they knew they found my journal and discovered that that my boyfriend and I were having sex and uh Ugh. the the daughter of the family would stay awake at night and she'd have her bible in her bed with her and her flashlight so that when I came in from being with my boyfriend she could read to me the verses of scripture about how fornicators wouldn't enter the kingdom um just to be sure I was aware of that when I would come in at night since wow. they they did read my journal and and so they one one morning I came downstairs and they were congregated the the parents of this family and my father congregating in the kitchen discussing uh, my my sexual sin and the the fact that I needed to either um, you know be married to this this guy or stop seeing him altogether you know that I I needed to be forced into an ultimatum you know which would be one of those two situations and. Uh, you know, I considered myself very in love with him. And, um, you know, certainly if I was going to be given that kind of ultimatum, I was like, I was 
like waiting for the opportunity to get out of that family, to get out of that house, <laughs> right. to get out of my family. So, um, yeah, I, I jumped at it and, and my dad, uh, also, because that meant he wasn't going to have to pay his money to the Mennonite family anymore. He was off the hook. To, he was off the hook. So he signed the papers and I was uh, an emancipated minor and I was married at the age of 17 to my then boyfriend. And, um, you know, that, that was great. I was, uh, and then you guys <laughs> at least I thought so at the time. Got your own yeah, place. We did. We, we were so young, but we worked really hard and we, we bought our first house when I was 19. Oh, wow. Um, you know, we were, we were very determined to show everyone, you know, that we could make it on our own and, you know, and he, his family was, you know, they were pretty rough too, in terms of dysfunction and, and poverty. I mean, he had it pretty bad financially speaking, but Anyway, of course, the, 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 the mark that the incest had left on my life didn't disappear. And we were still professing and practicing evangelical Christians at this point. Um, we started um, trying to have kids, like immediately. We started trying to start a family because we felt like, you know, that's, that's what, what to do. That's what everybody did. And that's I, I definitely do. wanted a family, yes. I wanted to have a baby right away. And um, it it wasn't happening. I wasn't getting pregnant. And, and, um, the meantime, my, my brother and his wife, um, they were taking in foster children. And, um, I really idolized my brother. I wanted to be like him. He was this wonderful, good, upstanding Christian guy in my mind. And, um, I felt like that's, that's what we ought to do too. We ought to take in these kids and, and while we can't have our own, you know, waiting for God to bless us with our, our own children, we needed to be taking in foster kids. And so I was like 20 when we started taking in foster kids. Um, I, I had, I think my adopted daughter was my third foster child. She came at nine months. And that same year as I got her, um, my dad passed away. He had had cancer. He was battling cancer for like a year. And wow, so, so just after you got married. Sort yes. Of. Just after I got married. Yeah. Um, he had this cancer and, uh, uh, this this secret was still mine as far as I knew and my my husband's he knew as far as I knew there was still nobody else um but um he died and uh that was really interesting because I I had no feelings about it at all whatsoever zero Mm -hmm. couldn't shed a tear couldn't feel a thing so I was just uh and I guess you could just numb numb is a good word right and so uh, I was actually at that point we had our our Mennonite church was too far away. When we bought our first home, it was too far of a commute for us, and we found a little independent Bible teaching chapel um, that our next door neighbor invited us to. It's like fifty families and extremely fundamentalist. No one to answer to because it wasn't a denomination; it was just the minister. So basically, it was top down. He was the top, and you know the whole teaching and everything was based on his. Uh, interpretation of scripture. Hmm. So we were in there fostering children and going to this little fundamentalist church and I was playing piano. I was um, playing piano for Sunday services and my dad dies on a Saturday night and I call my pastor on a Sunday morning. I said, I can't play this morning. I'm sorry. My dad died. And I had you know zero emotion and he's going, oh, oh, this is awful, you know, and um, please come and see me if you, if you ever want to talk. And I have no idea why, but at that point I was just, I felt compelled to say, um, 
I have no feelings about this because my father molested me for six years of my childhood, so I have no feelings, and I don't know what to say. You just blurted it out? Yeah, I just blurted it out. And um, he got real quiet. Hmm. And he said, um, well, well, just just know that I'm here for you if you ever want to talk about this. If you ever need to talk, you know, we, we can talk about this. And I said, okay, you know, got stuff to do, figure out whatever. Um, so that... I, I didn't, you know, take him up on that or anything. I just, we figured out the funeral. Um, we got through that all. There was a big service. Everybody, you know, extolled past virtues because, you know, he was this terrible sinner and came to Christ. And he'd only been a Christian like seven years. So the whole memorial service and everything at the Mennonite Church was very much about, you know, what an incredible work God had done in his life. And um, so... I was still sitting there, you know, harboring the secret, feeling nothing. Um, a few days after this, this memorial service, my brother, my brother's wife shows up at the door. I mean, literally a few days afterwards, and she's obviously distraught. Something is seriously wrong. She comes in and, and, uh, I'm 20 years old and she's, she's not that much older than me. And she said, I have to talk to you. And I said, what is it? You know, what's wrong? And she said, I have to ask you if you're did your father molest you when you were a child? And I was like, oh my God, like, where is this coming from? Like, how, how does she know? And um, I just looked at her and I said, yes, as a matter of fact, he did. I said, what, where, how do you know this? I said, where's it coming from? Mm. And uh, she said, I don't even know how to talk about this. But she said, since the day your father died, your brother has been trying to act out toward me sexually. And she said, I have... I feel absolutely certain that this is because something happened to him too. Wow. And so I was completely floored. I had absolutely no clue up to that point. Never occurred to me. You know, all these things were flooding into my mind. Like, of course he lived there. He yeah. did share a bedroom with him. Why would I not think that there was the potential for this to be happening? Like it just didn't never, ever occurred to me. Um, so I just remember this horrible moment where we both just stood there staring at each other this is the same woman who would wait up and read the Bible to you? <laughs> that was actually her sister. Her sister, okay. Um, yes, yeah, yeah. It wasn't the same, but she would have done it anyway. Yeah. <laughs> they definitely but were. Now she's in, yeah. the, in the different boat, right? I mean, now she's facing, she's sort of put the pieces together in her own mind. Well, and what she, it, within a few more minutes of conversation about this, she did acknowledge to me that there were a few times when they had been at the apartment uh, where... Uh, while my brother and her were dating, uh, while the abuse was actually Im happening, it was it was happening, um, and she she felt uh, certain that that's what was going on behind closed doors. Um, my father would call me into the bathroom while he was clearly naked and bathing, and uh, I I would be in there for you know a half an hour or forty five minutes, and uh, she would be extremely disturbed by this, and she she said she would try to get my brother to to go do something. And my brother would become upset and frightened and tell her that they had to leave and they would leave. And I suppose this happened like at least two or three times. My goodness. And, uh, that was really hard to hear. Yeah. Yeah. That they did nothing. <laughs> yeah. So, and I'm still like, I have up to this point had no help, no therapy, no conversation with anyone. Mm. Um, so I'm sitting there like processing what all this, what this means. Like it means people knew it means people, people 
didn't do anything. It means like, you know, it means all these things, you know, it means that it happened to my brother. It means, you know, um, and, and that, that defining moment for me was something that, um, it was quite awful. I mean, it, it sent me into a very, uh, difficult downward spiral mentally and emotionally. I had absolutely no idea how to cope with this. Um, the, the anxiety and the stress, brought on like a lot of, uh, it it brought like the whole, all of the events to the surface of my mind. And I started having horrendous flashbacks and memories that were never really suppressed. They were just never consciously uh, acknowledged and talked about. Mm. So I'd go to bed at night and I would wake up screaming and just shaking and sweating and uh, just feeling like he was on me. The whole thing was happening all over again. And, um, I had no freaking clue what to do about this. And my husband was completely bewildered. I mean, he thought I was going insane. I thought I was going insane. So, you know, all I thought about was, you know, my, my pastor of my church saying, you know, if you ever need to talk about this, you come and talk to me. And I was like, okay, there's a, there's a trusted soul. Surely he's going to know what to do. Um, so I, I went in there and I sat down and I just, dumped the whole thing out. I disclosed, you know, that this had gone on for all these years and that I, I was having these horrible flashbacks and terrible memories. And, um, and I said, I think maybe I should see a counselor or a a psychiatrist or something. And he said, well, you know, you, we believe that the Bible is equipped to handle everything, every crisis, every problem. He said, now it's up to you. He said, I can't tell you what to do, but I can tell you that you do run the risk of, of being, uh, you know, swayed into humanism, secular humanism, depending on what kind of counselor you choose to see. He said, now, I, I have counseled many people, and I, I feel equipped to help you deal with this. And I, you know, we can, we can work on this together. And, and um, you know, of course, I, I was very much under that fundamentalist mindset. I believed entirely that, that, that humanism and, and all of that was satanic. So I certainly didn't want to be, you know... Um, deceived by the enemy into some type of, you know, whole right. other way of thinking. Mm. So, you know, I took him at his word and he started uh, meeting with me weekly to to combat these, uh, what he called attacks of Satan. These nightmares and flashbacks were clearly attacks of Satan and he had me memorize verses of scripture and I had them on a big pack of index cards with a rubber band around them and I was supposed to memorize these uh, each time I woke up with one of these nightmares and say it out loud. Out loud was important so that, you know, the evil spirits that were uh, in the room with me would hear me, you know, in Jesus' name saying these biblical verses and this was going to to send them running. And um, I bought into this. I mean, I, I can kind of laugh about it now. I, at the time, though, it was extremely real for me. And sure. I, I was doing this for weeks. Um And thinking, you know, it should stop soon. It should stop soon. And in the meantime, the people in church were having an absolute fit that I was uh, seeing him over, you know, an incestuous relationship with my father. Word was catching around like wildfire. The secretary's door was adjacent to his office. She heard every word of everything I was saying. Oh, no. She was going to the elders of the congregation um, discussing whether or not it was appropriate for me to be having these conversations with him. Um, you know, they all feared that it was going to set up some type of uh, potential for there to be some sort of uh, sexual inappropriate behavior between he and I, right. you know, because we were <sighs> discussing these these delicate, intimate issues. And um, 
it became <laughs> such a scandal um, over time that he ended up resigning his position. Wow. Um, yes, he did. I did not and see that coming. Yes, he resigned his position. Um, I don't know what kind of coercion they used toward that end, but that was devastating for me because oh. at that point in my life, I had confided in no one else. And despite the fact that what he was telling me to do wasn't working, uh, the the fact that I was uh, at this sort of pivotal juncture that I was able to start to disclose these things uh, and, and speak it to another human being, you know, outside of my, you know, uh, my husband and um, my my brother's wife. This was huge for me. And um, that sent me into just, I was already in a bad place, but that was worse. Like I, that, that really caused uh, things to become suicidal in my mind. I felt not only was I, I a failure, I was not a good enough kind of Christian to gain victory over this. Um, now I, I ended up costing the pastor his, his position um, I, I also, you know, sort of felt like, um, maybe I was, maybe I was coming on to him somehow, not realizing it, you know, maybe I was <sighs> wearing the wrong things when I went to see him and all of the same so kinds of, yeah, dynamics that were a part of, of the incest were playing out again in this, you know, yeah. this next relationship. So, um, I did make a, a very serious attempt on my life. Um, I guess I should say, actually, it wasn't immediate. Prior to uh, making this attempt on my life, I did attempt to see uh, a female therapist that was a Christian therapist, um, and she attempted to give me some suggestions of different suggestions. She suggested a guided meditation that involved Jesus giving me a bath so I would feel clean. <laughs> oh, my. What? Yes, yes. This, this oh. was a, a clinician from a, a, a Actually, she was from a, a mental health hospital that had inpatient um, uh, facilities and everything. Um, was, it was very highly recommended in our area. And um, yes, that was her, her suggestion, you know, for how to help me uh, feel clean again and, and get past these things. And That sounds just um, as creepy, if not creepy. Yeah, it was. It was so creepy. And so... Uh, Again, I, I kept feeling more and more despair over the fact that all of my faith-based attempts at coming at this problem uh, were failing in, in so many ways. And um, I, I was prescribed um, medication through doctors there when I was seeing that particular woman in that particular facility. You got to see a psychiatrist who would help you with meds. And um you know, then you could see your, your therapist too. And so they were happy to dole out a bunch of medications for me. And, um, and then I, I also saw her, which was surprising because usually, you know, they're often very anti-medication, but I think at this point I was demonstrating enough psychological distress to warrant some, some medication. They gave me antidepressants and sleep aids. And, um, when I, when I finally made the decision to make this attempt on my life, I, t I took everything at once, um, and went to sleep and so, um, wow. I, I, I woke up after being in a coma for some time and, um, you know, uh, they had sent a, a psychiatrist in to see me and we had a conversation and, um, about the circumstances leading up to this. And, uh, you know, I kept trying to, to bring 
my beliefs into this conversation. And um, he would hear me, you know, um, but he, he kept, you know, he, he would say things like, because I would say, well, I, I know my father's in heaven and I know I can't lose my salvation, which means if, if I had succeeded at killing myself, I was going to at least get to be with my father. So at least I could have had this out with him. We could have had some kind of closure and I could have, you know, had a discussion with him about it. And he would say things like, well, maybe he's there, maybe he's not. Maybe, you know, no one's come back from the dead to tell us if that place is real or if, if he's really there. So he was ever so gently trying to get me to be willing to leave the unknown out of the conversation for the sake of recovery and, and deal with the, the tangible, physical things that I did know happened, the things that I could see and be sure of, you know, the, the realities that were, were present and available to right. me. Huge. And huge, yes. And so he, he didn't ever put down my faith or, um, or say it shouldn't be there. He just had a great way of kind of, of, of doing it that way, kind of coming around to saying, you know, let's, let's kind of, it was like sort of like a, a stick with the facts, ma'am. <laughs> the facts. Right, right. And um, let's, let's deal with the reality that we can see and touch and know about. Yes. Yes. And so um, by doing that, um, you know, uh, I was able to have some emotionally uh, authentic conversation, maybe for the first time ever, you know, um, to be able to, to talk about, you know, how, how angry I was and how um, afraid I was and how, you know, um, how much of my identity was tied up in, in the incestuous relationship, you know, how much I uh, really wasn't sure who I was outside of that or how to, how to function uh, outside of that. So uh, we connected and uh, he, he, we started working together and um, but I, it would still be years before, you know, but I would say he was probably that, that process and that even that very initial conversation was the beginning of the deconversion process for me. Um, and you met him in the hospital, right? In the recovery from your suicide attempt. I did. Yes. Yeah. Wow. Uh, and that, realization that, um, you know, that I could do the work, you know, I had been waiting for this magic, this, this, you know, God magic to sort of happen to, to fix things, to rescue me, to set things right, to, um, make me not remember anymore, you know, cause the people would say that, Oh, Jesus is going to take away the memories. The Holy Spirit's going to come in and just wash that away. And, you know, you're not going to have that with you. And, um, you know, um, uh, I wasn't finding that to be the case right. and it was really, it was really kind of hard to, to keep buying into that when, um, you know, here was this guy who was saying, you know what, maybe there's another way, you know, maybe it doesn't have to be that way, you know, that you have these screaming nightmares at night. Um, you know, and he was simply, very simply suggesting that I, I put these experiences into words. Um, and he started to educate me about PTSD and about the process of recovery, you know, um, the this, this sort of plastic way that I had been conducting my life um, inauthentically and, and the, the capacity that might be there for me to attach emotions to events by simply talking about them, you know, and, and putting into words those experiences. And um, I had like a new, a new roadmap, um, a new, you know, I was pretty hopeless before that. I felt like, you know, I was just doomed to be insane. You know, I, you know, this was going to keep happening 
and I would have rather died than than continue to live with those kinds of horrendous yeah. nightmares and flashbacks and things. And um, so it we that's what we did. You know, I, I started telling him what happened, and at first it would be prattled off like a grocery list, like with no feelings at all. And and over time, as I learned to trust him and feel safe, and you know, sort of drop the the guard. Uh, those emotions would connect with the events and um, I started to feel human and uh, it was quite remarkable. It was uh, incredible, indescribable. I could use a million words, but um, life changing. And um, I don't know that I immediately put together the, the deconversion with, with this therapy process and this recovery, but it definitely coincided, you know, it became more and more apparent through time that I had to keep suspending my beliefs in order to work on my recovery. And, you know, the work that I was doing internally and personally uh, on my own was having a very positive effect and I was getting better. Um, whereas the, the prayer and, and scripture memorization and the other kinds of things that I, I still continue doing um, didn't seem to matter. You know, they didn't seem to impact it. Um, and I kept trying, you know, I, I, um, you know, after, after that pastor resigned of that fundamentalist church, I abruptly shifted gears. Um, I actually went into a Roman Catholic church. Um, uh, at least they weren't preaching hell there and it wasn't gloom and doom. And, um, I felt some sort of, uh, attachment to some of the, the rituals and things that surrounded the way that they conducted worship, um, and hung out there for a while. And, um, eventually, you know, kind of felt like that, that was still, you know, patriarchal and still, you know, um, still had a lot of, of problems to it. And, um, I think it probably wasn't until about maybe 19, late 1990s or somewhere in there that I actually began an intellectual, a more intellectual process of deconversion. Um, I felt like I was at a, a real enough place with myself that I could actually, um, look at, at why, you know, someone might, might not believe from an intellectual standpoint and tried to really understand why the scriptures weren't to be taken literally. And, um, you know, at that point kind of embarked on this whole, um, intellectual process. So that's been already Um, a couple of decades since then too. Um, yeah. Um, I, you know, I still, I, I still love to delve into it a little bit, but I would say, yeah, I, I really think, um, somewhere between, you know, the year 2000 and now, you know, I was reading a lot of, uh, progressive Christian material, Spong and Borg and, um, Riza Aslan and, and some other scholars that were, um, pretty, pretty good at explaining in layman's terms why, uh, the Bible, you know, uh, was certainly not infallible or inerrant and, you know, certainly why the scriptures were written the way they were and, you know, maybe not to be, well, obviously in my mind anyway, not to be taken literally. I'm not an account of historical, um, historical fact. Um, once I, I kind of, the pieces of that kind of fell into place, uh, it got easier and easier to allow myself to conceive of the idea that maybe there wasn't a, a God at all. You know, maybe there wasn't a deity, um, you know, I started to be able to conceive of, of the idea that maybe we are on our own, you know, as, as humanity. And, um, I, I really liked, um, we, we had, you know, after I progressed out of those, those areas, I, I met my 
I, well, there was a divorce in there. I should mention that. <laughs> um, there was a divorce in there that happened. Um, uh, sort of felt like a, a, you know, culmination of, of many things, you know, certainly uh, recovering from that kind of thing strains any relationship um, quite severely. And, and, you know, there were lots of reasons um, you guys, for the divorce yeah, to happen. You started off on shifting sand just because of circumstances. Absolutely. Yeah. And so, um, you know, after that, um, was invited to a UU church, um, by a neighbor, um, as I was going through my divorce process. And, um, that's where I met my, my husband who I'm married to now. And, um, I guess that what I was going to say and, and through that process is, um, I think that was really key for me also to experience community with so much diverse belief in it and to see that, you know, the reality of people coming together for, for common good that didn't have to do with uh, common beliefs. Um, it, I met so many wonderful people there and uh, many of them were atheists and many of them were not. And um, I really had a, a love of all things pagan for a while while I was in that um, particular uh, group of people and still do. Um, I love the earth-based religions and the history of them and, um, you know, the goddess traditions. And I, I felt uh, a real sort of kinship with that way of thinking, but definitely knew I didn't have, a, you know, a, a belief in sort of the, the magical aspects that some people maybe would ascribe to that, you know, as far as ritual, sort of making some sort of alchemistic change happen with energies or whatever. I, I didn't really get into that Going part of it. That, yeah. yeah. But um, just as far as like understanding interrelatedness and kinship and, you know, that, that sort of we're all connected biologically and that sort of thing is, I found that to be pretty cool for a while and certainly would never have left myself investigate things like, you know, paganism or Wicca or any of that, you know, during the years that I was Christian, it would have last place, last thing I ever would have looked at. So, uh, you know, um, it's just kind of a, a process of, of learning not to be afraid, you know, to, to investigate any source of information, you know, even outside of the ones that I had always been taught to stick to. And I think when you can know yourself really well and be comfortable, especially with fear, and when you get so comfortable with that fear, which I think is a lot of what my recovery process was about. Um, I think once you get comfortable with fear and you don't, fear, fear, hmm. then, you know, you, you really uh, don't fear sources of information. You, you start to realize that if there's truth there, something that you're going to understand from it or take from it, you know, that that, that uh, is yours to figure out. That's really, I mean, that's really profound, what you just said about fear. Do you, are there other emotions or concepts that you feel similarly about? Like, I mean, fear is such a good one, right? So it's like, you walk up to this abyss and you look into it and it's just dark and you know, you just jump in, right? You just decide that you're going to embrace it and you find out that you're okay. Yes, it is like that. And I think, you know, it, I think the, the recovery that I went through uh, was so imperative to, to being able to do that with, with the religious experience also, because where I was afraid of looking at aspects of my own mind, for instance, within my sexuality, um, I had a very, um, I had a strong penchant for violence that, that ran through my veins, sexually speaking, that, 
you know, uh, you know, you could make an argument that, you know, all humans have that, you know, to some degree or another, you know, because we're, we're animals or whatever. But in my case, I was pretty certain that a lot of that came from my personal experience. And, um, it was very difficult for me to acknowledge that sexuality apart from pain was not a concept that I had experience with or could embrace. Hmm. And my, I think that I would, liken my willingness to be able to look at that, if you want to call it darkness, mm. to my willingness to be able to look at uh, the uh, the role that pain was playing in my religious experience, and um, to even be able to draw parallels in, in the way that pain was operating um, alongside of love in my life. And I had allowed myself in many ways to, to translate pain into love. Um, I'm sure, you know, when I was uh, eight and, and incest began, I'm sure on some level of my, I didn't even know what sex was when it started. I'm sure on some level of my mind, despite the fact that it was a horrific experience, I told myself that this must mean that I'm special to my dad. That's this must right. mean that, that he loves me. Right. And so, uh, when I look at some of the dynamics, you know, going on within Christianity, um, uh, just like the idea that, that, you know, he, he loves you, God loves you so much that he would torture his son. You know, um, when I look at those kinds of, of things going on, um, you know, I can, and I can draw direct lines and I can adamantly choose to reject that, right. you know, that idea that, that love involves pain, you know, and that, um, that or that it necessitates uh, pain, you know, yes, like that, that love requires pain somehow. Absolutely. Yes. Absolutely. Yeah. I wonder if I'm guessing that this might have happened to you where where people who find out you're atheist um, would say something like, well, of course, you know, because you experienced this trauma. um, But that's not the way real Christians are. Obviously, you know, your dad wasn't a real Christian. And, you know, that kind of thing and try to put your uh, experience of losing faith uh, into this category where uh, it's because you're damaged in this way and that's why you can't understand it or something. Yes, absolutely. Um, I even, you know, I, just even a few years ago uh, when I um, I was doing some work toward a documentary that uh, ironically, my, my therapist's son uh, is a, a film producer um, and it was just a coincidence that I saw a clip that he did on my old therapist on a, a YouTube video and responded and, and we collaborated on a documentary about recovering from sexual trauma. And uh, through that, um, I had posted something on Facebook about this interview because it was a, a, a powerful experience for me to be with three guys I didn't know from anywhere and <laughs> share my story in front of a camera. Um, but my, my, at that point... Um, I decided to have a conversation. Uh, my my brother-in-law had he is a pastor of a, a huge evangelical church in Indiana, and uh, I I had decided that I would engage in some conversation with him, just related to exactly what you're saying. You know, uh, was this choice made out of bitterness? You know, because these things happened. Um, he certainly had no clue about my history. Um, and so we, we actually dialogued for the better part of two and a half years wow. online about, um, my <clears throat> leaving the faith, excuse me. And, um, uh, it, it, it was good for me because I think that it helped me to realize 
that I really didn't leave any stone unturned. Um, it was it was very helpful for me to see that when I would present him with pieces of information related to like infallibility of scripture, for instance, right. or um, that he would find excuses and sometimes flat out refuse to to read or consider the sources of information that I had. Um, so that piece of it, you know, really let me know that he was still in a place that he was unable to do that. It wasn't a situation where he clearly had delved into all these things. Um, he would send me like, you know, debates between William Lane Craig and, and John Shelby Spong, you know, and, <laughs> and, um, you know, I didn't, I, even at that point, I did not have a good basis of theology or, um, philosophy. I didn't understand like the influence of philosophies on theology. I didn't have any of that quite yet when we we were dialoguing, but it was really helpful for me because uh you know, I would I would take what he said and delve even further intellectually into those ends of things. Um I, I just recently heard someone talking about the premise of of uh, uh William Lane Craig's argument, um you know, that whole causality thing, you know, I didn't mm fully understand that. And so, you know, if you listen to him, well, yeah, maybe some of what he has to say feels compelling, but I was really able to even further break it down. I, so I wasn't just saying, you know, no, I disagree because he, I don't like the way his body language is and he seems angry, which, you know, all of which is true, but, um, <laughs> yeah. you know, it, 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 I wasn't just going by that, you know, I was actually taking this stuff and figuring out why don't I believe this? You know, why, what is it about this piece that I just can't agree to. So, yeah, I'm, I'm glad I did that. And certainly, yeah, they can write me off as bitter, you know, as damaged. Exactly. I, I, well, I do get that a lot. I think it's a um, case of, you know, those kinds of arguments in my experience tend to be a case of protesting too much because I, I find that the person who says, well, you haven't really thought this through from A to Z, you're making an emotional uh, reaction to something in your life. Uh, I actually find the reverse is often true that people who say that actually are doing the very the very thing they are accusing you of that they haven't really thought it through and that they're making an emotional response to something that they've experienced you know they had an experience of some kind that convinced them that god was real and that's right what, you know what i mean so it's like then they turn around and accuse you of that often so um you know it's it's just interesting because i get that a lot too oh you were fired from your church and and then mm -hmm. you know people treated you badly and and i always say man people treated me badly all of my christian experience if i wanted to leave because people were treating me badly i would have done it a long time ago right yeah but it wasn't until i really you know, like you, I wanted to know after I went through some of the, I mean, I didn't go through anything compared to what you went through, but after you go through some of those painful experiences, then you stop and you say, okay, am I going to really throw this all away because I had a painful experience or is it truly not working? And in your case, you had evidence all along that it wasn't working. You, right. you know, you ignored some of that evidence for reasons that people often do, uh, mm -hmm. you know, but like you had been praying for feelings to go away or for healing to happen or nightmares to stop or whatever. And it just wasn't working. Right. Yeah. And yeah, even, you know, uh, fortunately, you know, my, my husband too, you know, he was, uh, his deconversion was, was real similar to mine. And, and we, we had that, that piece in common too. Um, and he had done, you know, some of his own delving intellectually, but, um, 
he was the first one to use the word atheist. And that actually wasn't all that long ago. And, and he resisted it for a really, really long time. We both went around, you know, we were spiritual. And, you know, that's such a nebulous term. You know, if, if people would say, well, what does that mean exactly? Um, it was pretty hard to define. And Yeah, there's plenty um, of room to kind of camp out in there for a while. Yes, and we, we certainly uh, did that. And, um, you know, I, I still, I love hearing, you know, where people are at with all of these kinds of things, you know, in, in the spaces you like to call it between belief and unbelief. Mm. Um, I love getting into those conversations with people. And, um, but as far as, you know, I always had this, you know, atheist felt so, so final, you know, like the, the God is dead, you know, title on the time magazine from the sixties or whatever. Like it just felt like this finality, almost like a place you can't, uh, back out from <laughs> like right. once you declare that that's that's it you know the last that's stop the on the, the train line. line yeah yes yes so um you know still like making making peace with the term but um you know and i think that's just very cultural i think you know that's something that um you know those biases are just uh they are culturally because uh you know religion is just such a strong piece here right and so what would you say in closing to people listening who are not as far down the path as you are? Maybe there's somebody listening right now that's um, listening to you and thinking, oh my God, that's me in some sense, but I'm 20 years younger and I don't know, I'm scared. Um, or or maybe it's less severe than what you're going through, but they're also facing you know, some real family dysfunction based in religion or not uh, based in religion. You know, what, what is, what's your, you know, best advice to people that are kind of going through this really painful experience? I think, uh, finding safety, I think in, in whatever form that takes, it could be a trusted person. It could be a a community, uh, a group, an organization. Um, I'm hearing so many people, uh, on life after God using that word. It's safe here. Um, I can say what I need to say here um, without judgment, without repercussions, without, you know, um, shame, without, you know, Mm. being shamed for for what I think and feel. Um, So I think that that any kind of progress, you know, towards sort of finding a way uh, to to freedom or or to, you know, a way out of the circumstances and, and the way you're feeling definitely has its roots first and foremost in safety. Um, and trust. So getting, you know, establishing that with someone, um, you know, some human person or persons, however, that might be able to happen is so key. And, and from there, I think things can start to get worked out. Hmm. Well, thank you so much for being so, um, you know, open and, and uh, vulnerable about this obviously really difficult. um, Well, I was going to say, episode in your life, but it's been kind of your, your whole life. You've been working on this and, um, you've, you've, you've faced it and, and you're, you know, able to now share with others and and give them some hope, I think. Well, thank you for giving me the opportunity and, uh, it, you, Ryan, and have now become a part of my healing process. So, Mm. and that is quite remarkable. I mean, your words have been all along in your blog and things, but, um, it's it's how it works. So uh, it's it's beneficial for me as well to be able to share this with you and and with the listeners. So thank you very much.
Thank you so much for tuning in to this production of The X-Files, a special feature of the Life After God podcast. Thank you so much to Marsha Wickham for for sharing so openly and vulnerably this story of her life, um, a story of pain and suffering, and now a story of healing and recovery and a new life that she's enjoying uh, after getting clear in her mind uh, about the real nature of what happened to her and um, how she can find the healing and recovery that she so desperately needed. Thank you, uh, Marsha, for sharing with us. If you uh, have any um, sense of resonance with her story and you haven't sought the healing and recovery that you uh, need, I hope that that Marsha's experience and story can inspire you to seek that out. There is life after God. There is life after um, horrible uh, dysfunction and abuse. And we have this one life to live. We have this one moment in time that we get to experience all the goodness that is ours to experience. And uh, I hate to see anyone languish in pain, waiting for uh, something to come along or waiting for some kind of magic to happen or for some divine being to intervene and make everything okay. As Marcia said, it, it really... Uh, you know, she discovered that it had to be her that took took matters into her hands and sought her own health and healing. And, and each of us need to do that. Uh, I've worked on that, and I know many of you have. And uh, we, we do coaching here at Life After God. If you want to speak to someone um, about your journey, about your religious and spiritual journey, uh, or about anything else that's going on in your life, you can write to me at ryan at lifeaftergod.org. Uh, We also have our our main podcast that airs on Wednesdays, so stay tuned for the episode that's upcoming this Wednesday. Also, there's quite a few resources on our website, which you can find at lifeaftergod.org. Finally, if you are in a position of uh, transition out of your religion or out of your faith and you could use a secret and safe community that that Marsha suggests at the end of our conversation, uh, please again write to me at ryan at lifeaftergod.org and I'll help you get connected to our secret Facebook group, which is incredibly uh, loving and supportive group uh, that helps has helped so many people uh, walk this sometimes lonely path. So thanks again for tuning in. I'm your host, Ryan Bell, and this has been The X-Files, Stories of Life After God. Ryan here and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.